The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcoviedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Our God and Father, you are our God in heaven. You are the God who has demonstrated in so many ways your kindness to us. Um, Father, we come before you as those who um, follow you and, and seek to do your will, but following you is a long walk, and there are many decisions and innumerable challenges. And so, Father, we pray that in all of this you would keep us faithful, um, that you would make our hearts attentive to the path, that you would keep our feet on it, that you would keep our minds fixed on the goal, and that we might, in a worthy way, uh, in our lives, glorify you and enjoy you forever. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the text that has just been read to us is one that will be read repeatedly over the next several weeks because we are going to take some time to work our way through uh, this prayer. You probably can already recite it, at least in essence, many of you, and, uh, uh, but our purpose is going to be to try to squeeze out of it as much good as we can find. Um, And I want to do this not only because it is good for us Christians to learn to pray, but I think there's a sense in which everyone uh, prays or wants to pray um, in a certain way. So anyway, it's good to think that what we're really doing, I've had people with no religious commitments whatsoever uh, come to me in times of crisis or fear and ask me to think about them. (laughs) Please. You know, it's code language. I don't really believe in prayer, but I'm at the end of my rope, and I want someone who does pray uh, to do for me what I don't think I believe in, but I'm desperate for. Um, And I really do think all of us in some way or another uh, reach out in prayer in some way. Some of us are afraid to pray. Uh, I know some of us are afraid to turn a desire into prayer because we've been hurt. We've desired something strongly and haven't gotten it and we haven't understood. And so that creates sometimes an, a, 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 an atmosphere of fear for us. So I think these, these conversations about prayer are going to be particularly important. Um, and for many of us, prayer is an automatic response, at times involuntarily, involuntary, and yet the most religious step many of us ever take. Because to pray is to ask God for stuff, to tell him our needs and to ask for something. We looked at that last week, and uh, what we're looking at, if you're uh, online or listening to this audio, we're looking at a Calvin and Hobbes comic. I say Calvin is my muse, 
And of course, being a Reformed guy, people take that wrongly and think I'm talking about the other Calvin. Um, but you know, Calvin here has a question on a test that he has to answer. He has to write an essay on, on Magellan, and he clearly doesn't know the answer. Um, and so what do you do when you're in such a situation? You pray. And for Calvin, this is prayer. Now, you may have questions about Calvin's prayer, but it's prayer. It's perceiving a need and reaching out to God and dependence upon him for it. Now, you know, what? if you can't read it, he wants, what, a, a gas mask, a smoke bomb, and a helicopter. He wants God to get him out of that situation, and so he's very specific about it. You know, he has some things to learn about prayer. We all do. Um, we can get better at it. Now, of course, when I say that, it creates some of the wrong impressions, because for some of us to be better at it means we get more of the stuff we want. And I'm not entirely sure that that is what it means to be good at prayer. Now, the thing to learn here is how prayer shapes our desires. It's, you know, God knows what is best for his people. He invites us to enter into a relationship with him whereby we depend on him as a child depends upon his father and to ask for the things we want. And yet, through that, he and his sovereign good kindness shapes us and shapes our desires. Prayer, as Jesus teaches it here, is a desire-shaping enterprise. And I want to look at that a little more deeply to see that, you know, as Christians, what, what Jesus is seeking to teach us is that we pray differently, we pray desiring, and we pray together. So first, pray different, um, or differently if your grammatical uh, alarms are going off. Uh, the first word to draw attempt our attention is actually uh, shows up as two words in the English sentence, and it's actually the last two words. Pray then like this, like this. We are to pray like this. Jesus is giving to his disciples a model for prayer and telling us that this is how we are to pray and implicitly saying that we, when we pray like this, we don't pray like that. Jesus last week spent some time um, outlining some ways in which we are not to pray. We're not to pray pretentiously. We're not to pray to draw attention to ourselves. We're not to make our prayers complicated. Uh, they are to be honest. We're, not to, we're, we're to speak to God and not attempt to manipulate Him. There are all kinds of guardrails that we're not to leap over. But what he does now is give an example of a short, uncomplicated, honest prayer that can serve as a model for us, a prayer that is different from those that are, were being used to manipulate and impress both God and others. And so he gives us this prayer, and then the question we have to face is, Jesus saying that these are the words we're supposed to pray? Instead of praying for a gas mask, a smoke bomb, and a helicopter, are we supposed to solely and exclusively pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc., and so on? Well, there are some ways in which that's true and some which ways in which that is not true. Um, you know, in another context, which is recorded here for us by the gospel writer Luke, the disciples in Luke 11 asked Jesus uh, to teach them to pray. And his answer, he begins answering their question by saying, when you pray, say. 
And the implication there is that I'm giving you some words to pray. When you pray, say these words, our Father in heaven, and so forth. And so, and, and it would not have been unusual, it would not have been a surprising or shocking things, shocking thing for Jesus to give to his disciples particular prayers. Forms for prayer that were common in Jesus' day. It wasn't an unusual thing. It would not have been a leap for them to hear Jesus give them give them some exact words, and then for them to pray those words. And the church for 2,000 years now has done that, has used this prayer as a model prayer, as a, as a form prayer, as a prayer that we pray together when we gather in public, so much so that many of you who have grown up in the church could recite it for me now. And if all we did in reference or response to this message is daily to, or you know, multiple times a day, pray our Father in heaven, uh, you know, hallowed be your name. If all, that's all we did, we would wonderfully and greatly enrich our lives. This prayer takes us into the presence of God and the way that we need to be in the presence of God. And if that's all the further we go, it is a good distance for sure. Jesus here in Matthew seems to be articulating this in a slightly different way. Not just there's no conflict here, it's just that both ways of understanding the prayer are true. It is implied here that the words given are to be something of a guide, a template, a model by which our prayers are to be informed and directed. It's a guide that not only forms our words or shapes our words or directs our words, but as well orients our heart and teaches us something of the nature of our desires. You know, models are meant to model. Models are meant to be examples. Models are meant to shape the way we do things. And we model our lives, our behavior often on what other people do. And those that we honor and those that we respect, we will shape our lives like that. Models are meant to model. This is meant to model. Uh, Chad Bradford may, you know, let the record show it's been an awfully long time since I last used a baseball illustration, so please grant me this. But, you know, modeling is like Chad Bradford learned to throw a baseball. Uh, for a time, he was an extremely successful major league pitcher and an extremely unorthodox major league pitcher. His story is told by Michael Lewis in his book, Moneyball, but Barb and I had an opportunity to, to see him pitch a number of years ago. Uh, it is safe to say that he threw different. Uh, every other, or nearly every other, major league pitcher throws a ball like this overhand. Uh, Chad Bradford, no, he threw the thing so underhanded that at times he would scrape his knuckles on the pitcher's mound. Uh, that's different. Where in the world did that come from? It came from a model. It came from what he had been exposed to. Michael Lewis tells it this way, Chad Bradford grew up the youngest child of a lower middle class family in a small town called Byram, Mississippi. And not long before Chad's second birthday, his father suffered a stroke that nearly killed him and left him paralyzed. The doctors told his father he'd never walk again. The father insists that that just wasn't true. He looked up from his bed, stone-faced, and announced his intention to raise his three boys and earn a living. Through an act of will, which he also thought of as an act of God, he did just that. By Chad's seventh birthday, his father was able not only to walk, but in a fashion to play catch with his son. He would never, the father, be able to lift his arm over his shoulder. So he couldn't throw properly. 
but he could get a glove up to stop a ball, and after he caught the ball from Chad, he would toss it back to him the only way he could, underhanded. The strange throwing motion stuck in the little boy's mind. And Jesus gives us this prayer, I think, so that it might stick in our minds as little children coming before our Father and learning how to pray. It is what it is a framework, it is a form, it is a model by which we can learn to pray in a way that is of greatest, brings greatest glory to God and greatest benefit to us. We are meant by this model to pray different as well as we are meant to pray then desiring. One of the things that makes this prayer important for us as a model then is it shapes not only the words we use, but gets inside of us to shape our desires. Uh, traditionally, the Lord's Prayer is understood as having six petitions, six requests, six things asked for. If you look at it, you can see them. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. Those are six things, six arenas, six frameworks, six areas in which we are meant to pray. Now remember Calvin's prayer, right? His prayer had three, three petitions. Three. He prays for the things he needs, what is in his heart, the nature of his desiring. In this case, a gas mask, a smoke grenade, and a helicopter. Three requests. Now, Jesus gives us a different model. He would give Calvin a different model. And that's what he gives us here. He says, these are the kinds of things you need to ask for. And when we begin to ask for these things, when we begin to wrap our minds around that what is important is God's glory and His kingdom and our daily bread and our forgiving hearts, when we begin to see that those are the things that we, we ask for and we begin to do that more and more, it has the reciprocal effect of changing our desires. That for which we are asking it becomes that which we desire. Jesus, by this model, is shaping our desires. He is teaching us what we desire, what we ought to desire. And, you know, and I think it does, over time, become an implicit thing. Barbara and I have been watching for the past couple of months a TV show that is set in Scotland. And I now find myself randomly walking around the house hearing phrases with a Scottish inflection. It's weird. I can't re reproduce it. But it's not going to be long before I'll be up here and I'm going to say something Scottish and you and your bairns will wonder where it came from. We immerse ourselves in something and that something begins to be a part of us. You know, Barb and I have some chili sitting at home and the longer it sits, the more those spices get into everything. And that which is put in there begins to assume the character of the whole. That's what this is. The prayer, whether we use the words themselves or use it to shape how we pray at some level, it is going to begin to impact the things that we desire. Is it okay for you to pray for what comes into your mind as you think of it immediately? Of course. And if that's a gas mask, a smoke grenade, and a helicopter, then ask. But Jesus is pointing us in a direction of maturity with this prayer, of a more whole and wholesome set of desires. You want to flourish in life, right? You want to find contentment. You want to find a life to be a full and enriching thing. 
And often we misread where that full life is to be found. And it's a very strong sense in which Jesus is telling us, fix your eyes on these things. Fix your eyes on these things. Desire these things. And it will lead you in that path of fullness. That's what I desire for myself. And it's actually what I desire for you as a church. There was a time... Uh, some time ago where I, you know, I was trying to think, what do I desire? This was years, centuries ago. But you know, what do I desire for a congregation of which I'm the pastor? And it kind of came out like this, a community of God's people. Where I, It didn't kind of come out like this. I actually wrote this down. A community of God's people where God's glory is more important than their own where God's righteous will has a greater attraction upon them than the neon attractiveness of sin, where building God's kingdom is a more exciting proposition than erecting personal palaces, where dependence upon the providence and grace of God is commonplace and the source of uncommon joy, a community which therefore cannot help but reach out, exercise justice, and love mercy. And I wrote that down and I looked at it and I said, where did that come from? Um, well, I didn't begin to realize it kind of looks like the Lord's Prayer. And I think it has come from God's immersing me in the language and rhythms of this prayer. Uh, Jesus gives this, gives this to us to shape us and to shape the things for which we long. And I want that for all of us because that's the direction of a whole life. And so we pray. We pray desiring in increasing measure the priorities of Jesus the third thing that's beautifully communicated here is that you don't do this alone. We get in the habit of doing so much in our Christian life alone. And, and our Christian life becomes a solo venture. Um, if anything, Jesus is teaching us here that our Christian life is not a solo venture. It's a communal thing. We're to pray together. This model prayer that Jesus gives us is distinctly plural. He says, pray then like this. It's a plural imperative. It's a command that is not spoken to you individually, but you corporately. If we were Southern, we'd say, all y'all pray like this. Let there be no question. This is for all y'all. Um, which I suppose we could read as saying, here's what we want you to do. We want all of you now to go home, isolate yourselves, be by yourselves, crawl, crawl into your closet, and pray by yourselves. I guess we could read it that way. Clearly, praying privately is something we are to do. Jesus went off by himself into the mountains to pray. Jesus, just a few verses earlier here, in verse 8, said, you know... Um, uh, when you pray, I'm sorry, um, verse 6. I was, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And some take that to say, oh, that's the way we're to pray. We're to wall ourselves off, be totally by ourselves and pray. Well, absolutely do that. The, the pray there in verse 6 is singular. Go off by yourself, pray, do what Jesus did. But Jesus also gathered his disciples and prayed. And notice what he does here. He has his disciples gathered and he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. Our Father. We don't in private pray our Father. We pray my Father. Our Father, plural. 
We are in conversation with others here. It's a corporate prayer, and it's to be prayed together. And in fact, nearly all the recorded praying we have in the Bible is not solo, private, isolated prayer, but it's corporate. Prayer is so often shown to be something that the church does when it comes together around some need. And we can just, you know, just pull out some examples of that. Uh, After Jesus' ascension, the disciples were of one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Um, They were together in one place, devoting themselves to prayer. And then as as Elizabeth told the story and we read the text from Acts 12, when the church fell under official pressure, uh, Peter was... Peter was jailed, and uh, as, as she so eloquently put, Peter was kept in prison, uh, but earnest prayer for him, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church, and, you know, lest there be any question uh, as to whether that was individual private prayer or a corporate together gathered prayer, verse 12, when he realized that he had been released, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And then when Peter went into hiding, because now he was a wanted man and he, his life was in danger, others had to take up the slack for him. And there were, we read in the church at Antioch and Acts 13, prophets and teachers, etc., Uh, And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit, so while they were together engaged in uh, religious activity, um, they, after, we read in verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul uh, for the work and sent them off. They were a praying community. We are to be a praying community. Now take a breath, Randy. Um, You know, God has made us a corporate community. Uh, we, but you know, and whether, let me just say this as well, whether we pray alone or pray together, we never pray alone. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in the name of him who invites us into the presence of God and the one who by his sacrifice and resurrection has enabled us to go into the presence of the Holy One of Israel and lay our request before him. So even in that way, we do not pray alone. We go in the name of him who stands at the right hand of God, interceding for us, praying on our behalf. But you know, when we, we, we are to pray together, one, not just once, twos, threes, and more, and truth be told, we do too little of this. Now, I don't mean that we don't go to enough prayer meetings. I give thanks for prayer meetings, um, and that's good. But we don't just simply pray enough together. We tell each other, we tell each other, I will pray for you, and that is good. But maybe we need to nurture the practice of praying with one another not just promising to pray for one another. I can count distinctly and articulate distinctly three times this week where it would have been good for me to have prayed with others, to be with them and to pray to our Father. And, you know, I went into the situation, did my thing, came out of the situation, and it wasn't until later I thought, you know, that would have been a good place to pray. Uh, there was a time at our, in our family a number of years ago, uh, uh, it was a traumatic time, some things were happening, and a guy from, who lived next door happened to come over, and he sat on our couch, and he talked with us, and he heard what was going on. He was a, a Christian from a nearby church, not ours, and he said, can I pray for you? And so he prayed, and he prayed to our Father. It was a prayer 
for the will of our Father to be done on earth as it was in heaven, though he didn't use that language. It was a prayer that our needs would be met, our daily bread be given, though he didn't use those words. It was a prayer that we might be delivered from evil, though, again, that was not the language he spoke. But it was good. He didn't simply leave and say, I will pray for you. He prayed with us. You can do that. Again, the church, when it gathers for prayer, is a monstrously good thing. And I understand, though, sometimes the reasons we don't. We're busy, right? That doesn't mean we can't pray together. Instead of just saying, I'll pray for that, pray for it. Again, not to impress anyone. We are so shy. We're so fearful of, of, of this text here of, of like we're praying in public trying to draw attention to ourselves. No. We're going before our holy God and our heavenly Father on behalf of this person who needs love. And so we pray. Um, to say, you know, pray. Uh, not to, you know, we are to believe in the importance and power and communi- communal nature of prayer. Uh, simply say to someone, may I say a prayer with you? We're a good church for handing out meals. And, you know, I've gotten a number of those over the years. And, you know, I remember many of them, but the ones I remember most is when they were brought together with prayer. Food was dropped off, and before the person left, said, do you mind if we pray before I go? Um, You know, when we're getting meals delivered, that means something has happened. Something is broken in our households. And when you bring that meal, you can bring a gift as well to pray. Um, Short, honest, uncomplicated, genuine prayers that give glory to God and seek for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can do that for each other. And I think this is meant to encourage that. It's part of what it means to pray different and pray desiring and to pray together. In many respects, we are children coming to a father that we don't know how to talk to. We have an impulse to speak to him. We have an impulse to ask things of him. But we babble. We push our vocalizations to our father to the extent of our ability because we want to be understood like an infant or a toddler wants to be understood. And it occurs to me, I wonder if the ability to pray, the acquisition of the ability to pray, prayer acquisition is like language acquisition. You know, it's fascinating, remarkable, nearly miraculous the way a child learns language. I understand that when a child is born and begins to verbalize, his mouth is making all the sounds that the human mouth is able to make. And so it's all coming out. It's not babble. It's him experimenting with this new tool that he has. But over time, that which remains, that which is retained, that which he continues to verbalize, are those sounds he hears back. The sounds that are spoken by the adults around him. The sounds that are modeled for him. Those are the sounds the child retains. And that is how he how he acquires language. He hears and he repeats. He has it modeled for him. And so as he speaks this variety of sounds, it becomes narrower and narrower until he is speaking the language that his daddy can understand. Jesus accepts our babbling. But he is also here speaking to us the language of prayer that over time we might acquire it. 
and as well that we might desire what is good to desire. And so let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have spoken to us in language that we can understand. And we pray, Father, that you will shape our hearts and our words according to this model that you have given through your Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.